0: My name is Jason, and I'm glad to be here with you guys at Tours Rivers uh, this morning. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to Mark chapter 7 uh, for our passage this morning? Uh, I remember um, a Bible that my dad had when I was growing up, and it was like a big, thick Bible, and it wasn't hardcover. It was softcovered, and it, it always just said the way on it, and I never really understood what that meant necessarily growing up as a kid because my Bible that I had said, Holy Bible. And his said, the way, and I kinda like that better than Holy Bible. Uh, And I I learned later in life that what that meant was that the early Christians in the first century called the the way of Jesus, they they weren't known then as Christians, they weren't known as disciples of Christ, they were known as people on the way. And um, it's significant, I think, uh, for us in this series in Mark to think about uh, the way of Jesus. I mean, that is what we are looking at every Sunday. It's what we're studying. It's the gospel according to Mark. It is the way of Jesus. Who is Jesus? What is the way of Jesus look like? What does it mean for our lives? And in Mark chapter seven this morning, there are some really important things for us uh, to see. Uh, some things for us to understand and some things for us to grapple with and consider about what it means for us to be on the way of Jesus. Um, so I'm excited to uh, turn there with you. I've titled the message Open to the Gentiles, uh, Open to the Gentiles, which is pretty significant for all of us because all of us are Gentiles. Uh, the way of Jesus is radically open Uh, to the Gentiles. Let's just, I'm gonna start, we'll just start with reading uh, Mark 7, starting in verse 24. It picks up from where we left off last week, and it says in verse 24, From there Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, We're going to stop here just to get some context. First and foremost, from there, we know from last week's story and passage, Jesus was ministering uh, often, often in the Sea of Galilee area, specifically along the western and some of the kind of the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, two thirds of his ministry. And that's where he had been at the beginning of Mark chapter seven. And so from there, these Jewish cities along the Sea of Galilee, he would go to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which were cities outside of Israel, non-Jewish cities, Gentile pagan cities. If you wanna look at it on the map, you can see Tyre and Sidon in the red on the Mediterranean Sea up to the north of Israel. Here's what is important for us before we get uh, into the narrative this morning on the context of where Jesus is and the way of Jesus. Uh, Tyre and Sidon, they're ancient cities. Of Phoenicia. They're mentioned, uh, these cities together are mentioned multiple times in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And they are in modern day Lebanon uh, along the Mediterranean Sea, again, Gentile cities north of Israel. You might know this story from Luke chapter 10. uh, In the context, Jesus is speaking about these two cities, Tyre and Sidon, in the context of judgments that he was pronouncing against. Jewish cities, and so he uses these two pagan Gentile cities uh, to to make an example, to give an example of judgment to uh, the Israel cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida. You don't need to turn to Luke 10, but let's read this brief passage from Luke 10, where Jesus is pronouncing these judgments against the Jewish cities of Israel. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. The people that would have seen the ministry, seen the miraculous, again, Gentile, non-Jewish cities, if they would have been privy to what you have been privy to, they would have repented long ago. And it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment, speaking of the last judgment, speaking of the second coming of Christ than to you. Why is this important context for us this morning? Jesus uses pagan Gentile cities, Tyre and Sidon, to highlight the way that God's people, God's chosen people, Israel, had refused him. He's using these cities to help Jewish people understand how they have not repented and how they have not believed upon him as the Messiah and also to highlight the way that God has opened the kingdom to Gentiles. He's highlighting Tyre and Sidon to help Jewish people understand the importance for them to repent and believe, but also, also, which is so significant context for us, to highlight the way that God has opened the kingdom of God to the Gentiles, to which all of us Gentiles in the room say hallelujah, amen, and hallelujah, and amen, because the gospel has come for us as well, hallelujah. Let's keep reading the text with that context in mind, Jesus going to the Gentile cities. And from there he arose, and he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, verse 24, and he entered a house. And he did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden, but immediately, A woman, a Gentile, pagan woman, whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus said to her, Let the children be fed first for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go in your way and the demon has left your daughter And she went home and found the child, her daughter, lying in bed and the demon gone. What is happening here in this brief narrative in Mark 7, 24 to 30? If you remember uh, from the beginning of Mark chapter 3, you can turn back and look there later. A word, the word of Jesus, the word about the way. The way of Jesus, who Jesus is, what he was doing, what he was teaching, how all all the miracles that were happening. That word had gotten up to the north to Tyre and Sidon and, and many of the people that lived there, many of the Gentiles that lived there had made their way south down to the Sea of Galilee. Area. Now, we have no way of knowing for sure if this particular woman was one of those people, one of those Gentile people that had heard of Jesus and came down to the Sea of Galilee area in Mark chapter 3. But regardless, she had obviously heard the stories of Jesus, of his power, and certainly of his compassion, and just like that bleeding woman who went into that crowd and reached forward in faith to touch the cloak of Jesus, in Mark chapter 6, this mother, this desperate mother, for the sake of her daughter, she comes in faith to Jesus, seeking help. And I think the, the key phrase there and what we're seeing over and over and over again in the gospel of Mark is she comes in faith to Jesus, seeking help and healing. Remember, she is a Gentile pagan. She hails from a city that the Old Testament deemed a godless oppressor of Israel. If you were a Jew living in Israel in the Sea of Galilee area and you had a perspective about people that lived entire inside and you would have immediately said they're godless and they're our enemy and we hate them we hate them, they're godless oppressors of our people. We are the people of God. Now because she is a Gentile, the Jews would have hated her, they would have also regarded her as innately unclean. Not unclean because of anything that she had done, but unclean simply just because of who she was. She was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician woman from the city Of Tyre. And then the question, the question here uh, that she asks of Jesus uh, creates a very dramatic, I think, tension for a Jewish teacher. And the question is this when she comes, this Gentile woman, when she comes to Jesus asking something of Jesus for, herself for her daughter the question and the tension for Jesus a Jewish teacher would be this will will Jesus be as gracious to her as he has been to the unclean outcast of Israel we've seen Jesus's graciousness his power his compassion to the unclean outcast of Israel Jews people that live in Israel, But would he also operate with the same kind of compassion and grace and love and mercy to someone who is from a town that's known as a godless oppressor of Israel? Would he operate in someone that is a Gentile? Gentiles were impure simply because they were Gentiles. And the interaction that we just read has quite a few things that I think is worth paying attention to as we think about the way of Jesus. What is the way of Jesus in his interaction with her? I think highlights a few things that I want to point out with us this morning. Jesus initially dismisses her appeal with a quick reminder of what is first. First, I think, is the really key word in verse 27. If you like to highlight or underline, I would encourage you to underline or highlight that word first in verse 27. Jesus has come as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the Christ to Israel first. The Savior to Israel first, and she must understand, this woman, that she is not first in line and must wait patiently, but I think first is also really important because it implies hope to Gentiles. It implies hope to the Gentiles. Paul affirms the priority of Israel and the hope of all people that the kingdom of God is for anyone and everyone. Romans 1 says, Paul says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And then Paul says, first to the Jews, you guys know what it says next? Then to the Gentiles. That's what we're seeing in the text today. There is a priority that Jesus came first to the Jews, but also to everyone who believes, which is the Gentiles, and all the Gentiles in the room say hallelujah. Hallelujah, that he has come for us as well. But it's, we do need to recognize in this text that he initially dismisses her appeal with this quick reminder that she is not first, which is the second point, that she is not put off by Jesus' commentary on who is first. She operates in a humble and persistency of coming to Jesus in faith with her desperation and her need. She actually reacts with pretty quick wit and understanding of her place in line. She says in verse 28 again, "'Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table "'eat the children's crumbs.'" She catches the the meaning of Jesus's parable of his riddle immediately. She understands and accepts the implications of it. Israel has precedence over the Gentiles, and yet she continues to operate in faith to receive a blessing of healing from Jesus. Yes, Lord, I understand, but even dogs in a house eat the crumbs of the children who eat first. I understand, but I'm still asking on behalf of my daughter for a blessing of healing from you. Thirdly, she is humble in her place and not entitled. Like any parent whose child is sick or whose child is hurting or whose child is in need or in trouble, this mother will go to any length, any length to get her daughter some help. And she is not insistent and demanding and entitled of God's mercy, but she continues to humbly and persistently ask for it. And she will gladly she will gladly accept the rank of a household dog if it means getting some food for her daughter. She humbly accepts Jewish priority and she is sincerely humble in that. I'm reminded of a a verse that we talk about a lot here. It's James 4, 6. And James says in chapter four, verse six, but God, Jesus, he gives us more grace. There's always more grace. He gives us more grace. This is why the scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace or shows favor to the, anybody know? To the humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace. He shows favor to the humble, a willingness to humble oneself is a key reality to discipleship along the way of Jesus. Would you guys agree with that scripturally that humbling ourselves is a key reality of discipleship and Jesus honors her faith and her humility. Just as he is uh, gracious with unclean Jews, He is just as gracious with a Gentile pagan. Her daughter is healed and she goes in humble faith just as she came in humble faith. I see in this narrative, this reality of the grace of Jesus and the humility of faith bringing freedom and hope and healing to the lives of people, which is the gospel. The grace of Jesus and the humility of faith bringing freedom and hope and healing to people's lives, which is the gospel. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It's Jesus alone, grace alone, faith alone. This is the gospel of grace. This is what transforms our lives. And we see that reality in Mark seven twenty to 24. And then it moves right along. Mark is just moving right along in the narrative. There's no fancy transition. He just moves right along to the next narrative in the story. It's Mark seven thirty one. Then Jesus returned from the region of Tyre, and he went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee into the region of the Decapolis. The Decapolis, if you remember this, we've talked about this already in our series in Mark, the Decapolis were 10, Deca, Decapolis, 10 Gentile cities on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. So you can see Tyre up at the uh, top there in the the graphic in red along the Mediterranean Sea and all the 10 cities of the Decapolis in the black there on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Galilee, Decapolis, hear this contextually important for us this morning, Decapolis is Gentile territory just like Tyre and Sidon. Why is this important for us? It highlights that God has opened the kingdom of God to Gentile pagan to which all of the Gentiles in the room say hallelujah, hallelujah, praise be to God that he has come for us. Uh, So let's keep reading, we'll read to the end of the chapter. He returned, verse 31, from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. Verse 33, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And he looked up to heaven, and he sighed and said to him, "Ephatha, that is, be opened. It's an Aramaic phrase, which just simply means be opened. It's not, it's not anything magical, it's not some, some random thing that people didn't know. I mean, they, they would hear this phrase and know immediately what it meant. Epapha meant be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And the people there, they, they were astonished beyond measure. They were, ast- they were in awe. They were astonished beyond measure saying, Jesus has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is an interesting interaction of healing, isn't it? The healing that took place here in this passage uh, in the Decapolis is different than what we had seen before in the Gospel of Mark and certainly different than what we had just seen before in the narrative right before it with the woman and her daughter who had an unclean spirit. It's different. The Phoenicians woman daughter, all Jesus did was he spoke a word because of this statement, because you have said, even the dogs under the table eat the crumbs of the children because you have said that because you are operating in faith your daughter is healed he spoke a word daughter healed this interaction with this deaf gentleman and also with his speech impediment very different wouldn't you say than just speaking a word it's like okay there's a lot of things going on here he he touched his ears he got his fingers inside the ears of the dude I don't think they had q-tips back then by the way then he spit on his hand Like literally, like that's what the text says, and he touched the tongue of the gentleman that had the speech impediment. It's very different. Would you guys agree with that? What we're seeing, there were healings in both of the stories, miraculous, radical healings in both of the stories, but they happened in a very, different kind of way and what I want to do is highlight that there is a difference in how each person was healed in these two stories that are right on top of each other because I think oftentimes in ministry we try to grab onto a formula or a right way of doing things to impact people and we're like, oh, this person was impacted this way, so this is the way you have to minister now. We do it this way, and this is the right way to do it, and if you don't do it that way, then that's not the right way to do it anymore, which is called legalism, by the way, and we love to create these formulas and ways that this is how you do it, and if you're gonna pray for someone to be healed, then this is the way to do it, but I'm looking at these two passages, and going, they're very different. They're very different, and I think it will be helpful for us to see and understand and know that ministry, the ministry of Jesus, the healing ministry of Jesus isn't formulaic. Always be careful of teaching and ministry training that makes ministry, praying for people, ministering to people, formulaic. Again, this is how it's done, this is how we do it, this is how it must be done. Are y'all with me right now? Be careful of those formulaic ways because that is not what we see in these two stories. Totally different way that Jesus is bringing healing to both of these people. I would suggest to you that it's not as much about how Jesus does it, but that he does it. It's not as much about how he brings healing and ministers to people, but that his compassion and his power and his love and his grace and his mercy does it for people, period. To which I go, amazing grace, how sweet the sound for the woman and her young daughter that was healed with a word. And the gentleman who got Jesus' hands all up in his ears and Jesus' saliva all up on his tongue and he can hear and he can speak very different ways but both testifying to the compassion and the power of God. Jesus does only what God can do in both stories. It's not how you do it, it's that Jesus does it. Jesus is the Lord, he is the almighty God. He is transcendent with a word spoken. He can command storms to cease with a word. He can command demons to be released. He can bring healing to someone's life that is ill with a word, he is transcendent, but also Jesus is imminent. He is transcendent, he is holy, he is the Lord of glory, but he is also imminent. he is personal, he is present, he is with us. His compassion, his touch, his mercy, he is abounding in steadfast love. He touches this man with mercy and grace and love, first, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. But both stories, his compassion and his power on display, amazing grace. How sweet the sound. And what was the response of everyone there? Three different Bible translations just to kind of wrap our minds and hearts around the people that were privy to what was happening here. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well ESV the NIV the people were overwhelmed with amazement and they said he has done everything well new living translation they were completely amazed and they said again and again they said again and again can you believe this tell the story again tell it again let's tell yes let's tell the story again They said again and again, everything he does is wonderful. What was the response of the people? It was awe. It was faith. It was worship. It was amazing grace. How sweet the sound. It was hallelujah. It was praise be to God for his compassion and his love and his power and his mercy and his grace and it's peace, he is transcendent, he is imminent with us. I wanna give you three concluding comments because again, uh, this passage I think is so relevant to our lives today, it's so relevant to us understanding the ministry of Jesus, who Jesus is, the way of Jesus, and what it means for us to be followers and disciples along the way of Jesus. So three concluding comments for us to consider. The first from this passage, this narrative is fundamentally about crossing boundaries. Fundamentally, this narrative is about crossing boundaries. Religion and legalism creates distinctions and boundaries, clean, unclean, open, closed, in or out. And grace is just the opposite of legalism and religion. Grace is not to be understood by human rules and human traditions. It's not to be understood in a box. Grace is to be understood as radically open to everyone who comes and believes, amen? It is fundamentally about crossing boundaries. Be reminded that Jesus left Israel, he left the Jewish cities along the western shore of the Sea of Galilee and he walked, he went to, he left that location and he went to these pagan Gentile places. He walked there. He went to the town of Tyre. He didn't create an outreach program and a big worship event in Capernaum and send his people to go to Tyre and Sidon with flyers inviting them to come down to Capernaum. Are y'all with me right now? He went there to where they lived. He didn't invite them to come where he was. He went to where they lived. He went there physically. This is what it looks like to go on mission, to be a minister, to be a missionary. And by the way, all of you who are on the way of Jesus, you are a minister and you are a missionary and you are a minister, it's the priesthood of all the believers. All of us have this call on us to fundamentally consider what it looks like for us to cross some boundaries and blow up some distinctions based on human rules and human traditions. In Mark 1, or 7, 1 to 23, where we were last week, Jesus swept away and blows up those human rules and traditions of clean and unclean. And here, he is sweeping away and blowing up that religious distinction between Jew and Gentile. The text is fundamentally about crossing boundaries. It is salvation for everyone who believes. Yes, indeed, first for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. Secondly, this woman's humble faith embraces that she isn't first. Religion Religion, legalism will tell you to focus on self. The gospel of grace will invite you to take take your eyes off of your navel. Stop navel-gazing on yourself and look to Jesus. Let me just give you an example of what it means for us to navel-gaze in a way that removes us from understanding a humility in faith, because this woman's humble faith embraces that she isn't first, and I would just invite you to consider the spectrum of pride for a moment. Talk about focusing on yourself, right? But I would also say to put shame on that same spectrum, because I believe on the same spectrum of pride is shame. Both of them are connected to each other because both of them intently tell you to focus on yourself. And whether you are puffing uh, yourself up or I or we are puffing ourselves up with ego and pride or or we're beating ourselves down with self-abasement, self-hatred, you name it, It's all on the same spectrum because pride and shame tells you to focus on yourself and pride and shame blinds you from the grace and the mercy and the gift of God that he gives us in Jesus. And our enemy uses pride and shame as a favorite weapon to blind us from God and from his help. Pride and shame stiffens our knees so that we will not bow down and pride and shame silences our voice so that we don't call out to God for help. And this woman humbly, sincerely, persistently in humble faith accepts that she is not first but continues to ask God for help. She is not wallowing in pride and she is not wallowing in shame. She is humble and she is keeping her eyes on Jesus, she has no merit. She has zero merit to come to Jesus and ask for help. She has no priority boarding. She didn't pay the Southwest fee to be in the A group. Like no merit, no priority boarding on this story. Nothing, nothing to commend her. She is not entitled. I really deeply want the Lord to help me see and understand that in this passage and in this text. And I would invite you to ask the Lord to help you see it as well. She is not entitled. She has humbled herself. She knows that she is not worthy, but that does not keep her from coming to Jesus. She is like the friends earlier in the gospel of Mark that take their paralytic friend and they dig through the roof, remember that story? And they lower their paralytic friend at the faith of Jesus and Jesus sees their faith not the faith of the paralytic but the faith of the friends who are digging through a roof to bring their friend to Jesus and he says your sins are forgiven she is like the woman who pushed her way through the crowd to touch his garment and the grace of Jesus turns no one away that comes in humble faith The grace of Jesus turns no one away that comes in humble faith, but we got to get off of the spectrum of pride and shame to to take our focus off of ourselves and look to Jesus and what he is offering to us. Thirdly and lastly, I want to point this out in verse 32. Did you notice when I read that passage, what it said Jesus did with that? with that man that had been suffering, taking him aside from the crowd privately. I would encourage you to underline that word privately, circle it, highlight it privately. Jesus takes him away from the crowd into a place of privacy. Why do you think that Jesus did this? What would be the the reason that Jesus would take this brother In front of the whole crowd, everybody knows him. Everybody knows the brokenness that he's operating in. Everybody knows that he's a stutterer and they can't talk and he can't hear. Everybody knows that. They've known that for a long time. Jesus takes him away privately. I, I don't know that we can know for sure why Jesus took him away privately, but I'll offer my thoughts for your consideration on this. God isn't looking to create a miracle show, a circus of the miraculous, to invite this man to be a part of it. That's not the ministry of Jesus, that's not the way of the kingdom. I believe that Jesus took this man away into a place of privacy because grace honors people and their suffering. That's why I think that Jesus took him aside into a place of privacy because he was suffering and shamed. And the grace of God in Jesus honors people in their suffering. In private, Jesus could focus entirely on the man's needs and he didn't have to be distracted by the crowd. He could just look unto the face of God and be ministered to by the grace and the mercy and the compassion and the power of Jesus. How does all this relate to us? I would invite you to ask yourself some questions that I've been asking myself this week in reading this and studying this and praying through uh, this passage. The first question is this. Are we crossing boundaries and religious distinctions in our ministries? Are we going out of our way to meet people where they are, to meet them where they live, work, and play? Or are we thinking more about we just need to have people come to us? In your ministry, in your life, are you like Jesus who certainly goes out of his way to get to the region of Tyre and Sidon, goes out of his way to go to the Decapolis? Are we doing the same? This is the way of Jesus to go out of our way to cross some boundaries, to blow up some distinctions that keep people from understanding the grace of God. Secondly, when we think about ministry, when we think about ministering to people, are we humble in ministry, not seeking to get the spotlight on ourselves? Are we humble in ministry, not seeking to get the spotlight on ourselves? Pride puts the focus on us. Shame also puts the focus on us. Humility puts the focus on Jesus and others. Because you minister to someone in private, you're not gonna get a lot of pub for that. Not gonna get a lot of publicity for that because it's in private. But I see that's what Jesus is doing here with this man. Thirdly, uh, how are we caring for those that suffer? Friends, neighbors, Family, people in our church family, people that are outside of our church family, when you feel stirred to minister, to love, to give of your time, of your talents, of your treasure, how are you ministering to people that suffer? I believe a kingdom principle here is that we we are called to honor and care for them privately. Nobody, nobody, nobody wants their suffering on public display. And grace honors that and values that, and ministers to that. Grace is inclusive. The narrative is fundamentally about crossing boundaries. Grace is inclusive. The woman's humble faith embraces that she isn't first. Grace honors humility. Taking him aside from the crowd privately, grace honors people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the way of Jesus. We have much to see. We have much to learn. We have much to understand. We have much to grow in. Will you allow, by your grace, the empowerment of your word, your living word, to transform our minds, to renew us and restore us in the way of Jesus? First, First, that we would receive it for ourselves and then we would be joy-filled to be a part of the ministry of the kingdom of God to people that you bring into our lives and also people that we go out of our way to meet, to care for, to love, to minister to. We bless you for the time together that we've had in your word where we continue to remain hungry, for your word, and thirsty for your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.